the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Our mini-series on the betrayal of Jesus, His Gospel, and Communion continues next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Initially, as you take a look at our series title, you kind of wonder how they all fit together. But if you find yourself in Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 13, you get a clear view of how they all fit together. They all take place in one smooth, cohesive moment. The betrayal of Jesus, his gospel, and communion. It's all there in the upper room. Luke chapter 22 is where we find ourselves. Join us with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner. Thus far, we have set the Old Testament backdrop to help us understand the significance of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in studying Isaiah 53. Then we looked at the relationship between the Passover and the Lord's Supper and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we come to Jesus' institution of the very first Lord's Supper in history which took place Thursday evening of the Passion Week and afterwards. Just a few hours later, he was betrayed, arrested, and the next day, Friday, he was crucified. Now, I want you to notice how simple the first supper was. You can read Matthew's, Mark's, and John's remarks about this event, and you will see they are very brief. The service was very simple in a striking contrast to all the ornate embellishments that have been added to it ever since. You can go to some Presbyterian churches and Roman Catholic churches and Episcopalian churches and Lutheran churches and you will find all kinds of pomp and circumstance connected with the Lord's Supper. But not so in the first. It was very simple in that upper room. Now, what took place in that upper room? This is where you have to weave all the various accounts from the Gospels together. And here is what took place. First, they had the feast of the Passover. And then after the Passover, and not part of the Passover, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. After the Passover, Christ washed the feet of the apostles, and then once or twice during the meal, he brought up the fact that there was a betrayer among them. Then he celebrated the Lord's Supper with the apostles. And then what most people don't realize is that following the Lord's Supper, there was an extensive time of teaching by Jesus, which is recorded in John 14, 15, 16, and part of 17. There's a great little commentary that was produced by the Banner of Truth on these chapters that I just mentioned called the Inner Sanctuary, and that is what these chapters are. Because here Jesus teaches his apostles things that he never 
shared with the crowds. And we'll talk about some of those later. Then in John 17, he prays his great high priestly prayer in the upper room in connection with the first Lord's Supper. And then also there is an argument with the apostles about who among them shall be the most famous, which we will talk about next week. Then Jesus takes time to instruct and rebuke overconfident Peter. He then instructs the apostles about how dangerous the world is in which he is sending them after he is gone. And remember, he sent them once before under a different condition. Now they'll be without his physical presence in the world. So he says, if you don't have a sidearm, sell your coat and get one. You will need a sword out there in this wicked world. Isn't that interesting for Jesus to say something like that? Get a handgun to protect yourself, as would be here in modern times. And we'll talk about that more later, too. The evening then concluded with a hymn, and then they went out into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was betrayed with a kiss, arrested, and handed over for crucifixion. Now, notice what Jesus said to his disciples right at the beginning of chapter 22. Jesus begins the meal with an expression of his profound love for his people. He says, I've earnestly, earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Then he gives them a promise of his active presence. Look at verse 16. He says this twice. He says, for I say to you, I shall never eat it again. That is the Passover until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. Verse 18. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. What did he mean by that? He said, I'm going to eat the Passover. I'm not going to eat the Passover again until the fulfillment of the kingdom. And I'm not going to drink any more wine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, what is he possibly saying? He is saying, I'm not going to drink any more wine. He is not saying, I'm not going to drink any more wine until the second coming. And then when we all get to heaven, we can drink wine every day for the rest of eternity. And that may be. But I believe he is saying something much more profound and beneficial to us. Let's actually use his comments in John 14, which was the same night, to help us understand what he meant by this promise. I'm not going to drink wine until I drink it with you in the kingdom of God. I'm not going to eat the Passover until I eat it with you in the fulfillment of the kingdom. Let's see if Jesus can help us understand this. Turn to John 14. Remember, this is the same night as the first Lord's Supper. So it's all coming together here. And I want you to stay with me because this is going to be a long explanation. In John 14, Christ says, When he goes to the Father through death and resurrection and ascension, he will send them the Holy Spirit. And in sending the Holy Spirit, his presence will be with them until the end of the world. More intimately and more profoundly than he had been with them the three years of his earthly ministry. So now look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I shall do, shall he do also. 
then greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. There is the basis for all of these promises. He says, these promises that I'm talking about here in the inner sanctuary are all going to become true because I go to my Father. And that phrase means because I go to my Father in death, in resurrection and ascension. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, here you have an intimation of resurrection. He says, I'm going to go to my Father through death, but you can pray to me. You can ask me things in my name, and I will do it. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Here is why it is so important for Jesus to go to the Father. So he can ascend to God's right hand and send back the Holy Spirit into this world to bring the blessings and guidance and protection and provision of God into the lives of his people. Now notice the next verse in context to the ones we just read. Verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's not. Is, is he here talking about the second coming? Well, the second coming is not even mentioned here. The point is that in sending the Holy Spirit of God, you are going to receive my presence in a more wonderful way than you have it right here and now. The Holy Spirit of God is going to bring my presence into your life. I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to come to you spiritually in the power of the Holy Spirit, not physically. Verse 19, after a little while the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So here he says, in a little while, you're not going to see me. I'm going to be dead in the grave for three days, but then I will live again. And you're going to have new life in me because of that. And you're going to understand things by the power of the Holy Spirit that you got all mixed up before, apostles. Verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Once I have gone to my Father and the Holy Spirit brings my presence into your life, I'm going to reveal things to you that you're going to write down and you're going to preach, and the church is going to be built on those teachings throughout the history of mankind. Verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. By the power of the Holy Spirit, through the word of God, Jesus and his Father come and live with us and in us. Verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you many things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. 
Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So I think in these verses, Jesus explains what he meant when he said, I'm not going to eat the Passover anymore, and I'm not going to drink wine anymore until I eat it and drink it with you in the kingdom of God. Keep listening carefully. Several weeks ago, we studied the phrases, the coming of Christ and the coming of the kingdom. And we saw that those were important words that apply to closely related things. For instance, when Christ came in the incarnation, Luke teaches us to believe that is when the kingdom of God made its entrance into human history. When the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead, that was the coming of God in power as the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD irrefutably testified to and bore witness of. So here you have the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. According to our Westminster Confession of Faith, which of course reflects the Bible, the church is the kingdom of God. And that is now where this meal is eaten. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to eat with you now until I come back to you in the power of my spirit whenever you take the Lord's Supper. Whenever you take the Lord's Supper, I'm coming, he says. I will be there. I'm going to drink with you. Every time you eat the bread and drink that little cup of wine, I'm going to participate with you. Not literally, of course, figuratively. I am enjoying communion with you, he says. And not only just at communion, but at every moment of your life, during all the chores of your life. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be in our lives to guide us, to bless us with the power of the Holy Spirit, to hear our prayers, and to commune with us friend with friend. So Jesus drinks wine with you every time you commune with him. Every time you fellowship with him, most particularly when you fellowship with him around the Lord's table, he is with you, which is the fulfillment of the Passover. He said himself. And the last thing Jesus said before he left this earth was, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. So every time you take the Lord's Supper and we celebrate together, use your imaginations, beloved, and remember that Jesus is participating with us. He is fellowshipping with us. He is present with us here in this very room by the power of the Holy Spirit to bless us in anticipation of the fulfillment of the Lord's Supper in heaven where we will eat and drink with the Lord Jesus Christ forever throughout all eternity. So you see, this is anything but an empty ordinance. The Lord Jesus Christ is present in the fulfillment of the Lord's Supper. Now let's look and see how Jesus administered the Lord's Supper. I want want you to see how simple that administration was. 
Passover was completed. The Bible makes clear that the Lord's Supper was not a part of the Passover. It was after the meal. The first thing he did was give thanks. He blesses the meal and thanks God for everything it represents. And that's why 1 Corinthians 10.16 says this. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a showing of the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a showing of the body of Christ? It is a cup of blessing. The meal that has been blessed, that we praise God for and we thank Him for it every, in everything, it's, in everything it symbolizes. And the next thing that comes is the promise of His blessing. And then we have these words of institution. Notice what Jesus did and said, verse 19. And having taken some bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, the first question is, because we want to be thoroughly biblical, what kind of bread was it that Christ used in the first supper? More than likely, it was still some of the unleavened bread that was left over from the Passover. But the Greek word for bread in the Lord's Supper does not mean unleavened bread. And it also does not mean leavened bread. It just simply means bread as the staff of life. Therefore, there has never been any conclusive statement in the history of Presbyterianism or any agreement as to what kind of bread should be used in the Lord's Supper. So be careful you don't stand dogmatically on either one of those positions, beloved. What was the meaning of Christ's actions? What did he do with the bread? After having blessed it, he broke it, and then he served the apostles. He distributed it around the table, and those symbolic actions were obvious, obvious in their meaning. In the breaking of the bread, he symbolically testified to the breaking of his body in death on the cross. Then the giving of the bread to his church, the apostles, was to be a vital picture of his sustenance and the maintaining of their new life because of his death. To convey to them the benefits of salvation because of that death and to offer them communion with himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, something spiritual goes on whenever the Lord's Supper is celebrated. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, we read just a few minutes ago, it says, this cup is communion in the blood of Christ, and this bread is communion in the body of Christ. Now, the word communion means participation in Greek, koinonia. So it says, when you take the wine and the bread of the Lord's Supper, by faith, you are communing fellowshipping in, participating in, having conveyed to you by the power of the Holy Spirit the various benefits and blessings of the Lord Jesus Christ that were accomplished for us by His broken body and His shed blood on the cross. You ask, well, how does that happen? <laughs> Beloved, I don't know. All I know is that Scripture says, when you eat the bread and you drink the wine by faith, the Holy Spirit enables you and me to commune in and to participate in and to have conveyed into our lives afresh the blessings of salvation 
bought by the blood of Christ. Charles Hodge, one of the great Presbyterian theologians of the 1800s, said this, Every time the consecrated wine touches the waiting believer's lips, he receives afresh the sprinkling of the blood of Christ on his heart, the increase of his faith, and the increase of the assurance of his salvation. Unquote. This is something very big in our lives, beloved. But there is no magic here, and nothing ever happens automatically. There are some denominations in Christendom that believe that simply, simply going through the motions of taking the bread, eating it, and eating it without having any understanding of what is taking place is beneficial to you. There is nothing automatic in the Christian faith. If Christ offers himself to you in the Lord's Supper, how do you receive him? Automatically? As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Christ gives himself to faith. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to receive him or any of the benefits of salvation. And if you don't bring faith to the Lord's Supper and you just go through all the motions, oh, you're going to get something from Jesus, but it's not going to be good for you at all. You're not going to get any blessings of salvation. In fact, you will receive curses and condemnation for daring to come to this table in a superstitious manner. But if you want the blessings God offers to you in himself, you must receive it by faith. You see, when he offers the bread, he offers himself through the bread but you must receive it by faith. Nothing is automatic in the Christian faith. Now notice in verse 20. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What was in the cup? Well, I can assure you, it was not grape juice. In the first Lord's Supper, the Lord said, in the cup was the fruit of the vine, and the fruit of the vine is a functional equivalent in Scripture to wine. There is no doubt that it was wine, and it is easily demonstrated, both exegetically from the Bible as well as culturally. Remember Paul? He jumped all over the Christians in Corinth for getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't believe it's possible to get drunk on simple grape juice. Let me read to you something from a reputable Bible dictionary. It's called the Davis Dictionary. It says, The fruit of the vine is the designation of Jesus at the institution of the Lord's Supper. It is the expression used by Jews from time immemorial for the wine partaken on sacred occasions as at the Passover or in the evening of the Sabbath. The Greeks also used the term as a synonym for wine, which was capable of producing intoxication. So the reason we use wine is because they use wine at the first Lord's Supper. But I like what John Calvin says. Listen, when we see wine set forth as a symbol of blood, we must reflect on the benefits which wine imparts to the body. And so realize that the same are spiritually imparted to us by Christ's blood. 
In other words, he said, the reason they used wine was because the benefits of wine to the body are symbolic of the benefits of the Holy Spirit and the death of Christ to the soul. So, I'm sure you're asking, what are some of the benefits of wine to the body, according to John Calvin? He said, to nourish, to refresh, to strengthen, and to gladden the heart. So the Holy Spirit now is the one who nourishes, he refreshes, he strengthens, and he brings joy to the heart. And every time you see the blood like wine in the communion cup, you should remember that. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. That's four zero eight eight six six five six zero seven. Our website, where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us, is reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, you can write to us at PMB. That stands for Post Mailbox Number four zero two fourteen eighty four Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is nine five zero three two. Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.